Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Well, welcome back to another episode of Software Gone Wild. Now, in the past very early days, this was a podcast based around software-defined networking and all of the ancillary bits and pieces that sort of go along with implementing that, dating back to the early implementation days and even some of the theoretical stuff. Well, today we have two very special guests. The first guest, Josh Bailey, is the mastermind or one of the masterminds behind the faucet controller, which in my experience has been really the only production ready open flow controller that's being used it, you know, out there in the wild, in production, at scale, at speed. And along with Josh, we have the ever colorful Brent Salisbury. He's back. He's here to dazzle us with stories of SDN and programming and parsing text. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Yeah, I guess that, that is programming, right? You're turning kind of data into other kinds of data. Yep. Apparently people want. People definitely want it. Hello, my friends. Good to see everybody. Dust off some relics to come talk about some SDN. <laughs> when we're not doom scrolling on the garbage fire that is uh, 2020. <laughs> Hopefully this will be a nice, bright, shining spot, light the way to a better end of 2020. We're going to talk about our favorite subject, software-defined networking, although that's a loaded term and I don't typically like to use it. We're going to talk specifically about OpenFlow and how it's still there. It's still working. It's in production. People are using it. We're going to go, we're going to dive deep into a couple of topics that are typically Things that people talk about that they say, well, this doesn't work or this is a thing. And they're sort of myths. And I think we want to dispel those here. And, and, and Josh and Brent are going to do that for us. Without further ado, let's, uh, let's get it started here. So I think you want to talk about VLANs, Josh, right? Yeah. So, um, if there anybody here of VLANs, I heard that they're a thing. Yeah. Well, so let's go straight into, um, continuing the theme of like showing age. So I started on a Commodore 64. I don't know if um, about you guys. Yeah, I guess you're US, so you probably didn't use a Spectrum. But um, you know, during the '80s, you got a home computer. You usually had to to pick one. So mine was Commodore 64. Was what about you guys? Apple II, rusty nail with a potato. What what did you have? Yeah, I think I was an Apple II man myself. You know, a little King's Quest on 40 floppies. I had an 40, IBM yeah, PC. <laughs> what, what about you, Nick? I had a used IBM PC that my mom picked up from a friend several years out of date. <laughs> so, in other words, you, you probably had GW Basic on it? Oh, man, I don't even remember. So long ago. So, where I'm getting at uh, here is we all had, like, a bunch of these home computers, and they all had transistors, and they could all move data around and, and do mostly the same thing. Maybe a little bit faster, maybe a little bit slower. Maybe the graphics are a little bit different, kind of in each one. But each of them had a version of Basic on there. So, for... That's a very limited number of use cases. You could write a program that could run on, on all of them. But as soon as you tried to do anything 
be kind of non, non-completely trivial, like draw a picture or draw a graph, something like that. The same program, the same basic program wouldn't work. You know, I couldn't take my computer on Commodore 64, my program there, run it on your Apple, and expect it to work exactly the same way. Just one. So this is actually where we got stuck for a long time. Then eventually, with uh, home computers, we discovered actually it was more valuable to buy a computer that could run as much software as possible, like the software library and the available things you could run, and also portability and the ability to run your old program on new hardware. That became really important as well. You didn't want to just throw away all your software just because you changed hardware. So uh, we all kind of remember that, but we also you know, forgot that we just take it for granted. You know, I should be able to take my old software and my new machine. It should work exactly the same way. So unfortunately... Networking is still back there in the 80s with these home computers, right? You've got your Juniper network, and I've got my Cisco network, and both have got VLANs, and they've both got the VGP, and they've both got these other things, but they just work like a little bit different. They're not completely compatible. You know, getting your Apple to talk to my Commodore 64 is actually pretty difficult. You know, maybe we have to go get some modems, or we have to make some kind of weird custom adapter to make them all work. And even though they're technically just 8-bit computers and an Apple II and a C64 are using the same CPU even, they still can't run each other software. So that puts a, nat- a natural limit on um, the software library that's available to, to both. And if I wrote this awesome game on my computer, there was no way that I could share it with you um, other than you come to my house and play it. So this is what I'm getting at here with, with the VLANs. Like everyone knows what a VLAN is, and they're pretty well understood. They're failure modes, even though they keep biting us at a pretty well understood. But um, the VLAN code that's running on all of our, our networking devices is, is all different. Even though it's well understood and documented and written down, it's all different code. People today writing new VLAN code. So they're writing yet another version of the same code that, run, that runs VLANs. So why is that a problem? I mean, maybe some of that new code is, is better. The problem is I'm stuck on my, my current platform. If I want to guarantee that everything's going to work the same way, because I, you know, I value my time. I don't want to spend time you know, re-engineering the same thing over and over. It's just cheaper and easier and less risky for me to keep buying the same computer because it will run the same software and I'll just never touch anybody else's. And that means I'm limited to whatever software is available for that, that platform. In routing terms, I'm limited to you know, whatever iOS version or you know, Juniper OS version you know, that's got that paradigm, the way that it drives, you know, the screen editor, Everything. I'm kind of locked into that. I can never change it. So with Fawcett, we decided to try a, a different tech. Like, is it possible to write a really minimal implementation of something like a VLAN in the form of a, a program and have that program run exactly the same way on lots of different computers and then write tests to show that it runs exactly the same way on all of them? So I should be able to take a really old tiny switch, you know, four ports, or I should take a, a giant switch you know, with thousands of them, run the same program, and the behavior will be exactly the same. You know, what, would, uh, what would that mean? It doesn't sound that too exciting kind to begin with, but it means that I can finally stop writing that software over and over and over. I can go move on to something else that's more productive, like actually orchestrating a network at a much higher level. I can stop fixing the same bugs over and over and over again. And if a new vendor showed up tomorrow... You know, with a new amazing switch that you know I really want, I don't have to throw away all my management practices, any of the software that I'm running now. I can just run that same program on that new switch, and it will guaranteed work with the old stuff because it's running the same code. Now, it doesn't mean that um, the new computer has to be the same in every respect. It can be faster, it can have more ports. You know, it can do a better job of running that same program as long as the results are the same. So, this is what we try to do in Fawcett. 
And uh, to do that, we had to pick a, a version of, of OpenFlow that had enough capabilities for us to be able to even try. And back with OpenFlow 1.0, there just weren't enough uh, capabilities in the system to do that. So you, you had kind of one table, and you had IPv4 and a limited range of, of uh, matches. So it was like writing a basic program with no go-to command. You know, you had to run one great big long program that was if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. And you couldn't ever have a, a go-to. So it was a really clumsy way of writing a program. It didn't scale very well. A lot of the original OpenFlow switches had very severe limits in the number of decisions that you could make about a packet. So it just really wasn't very interesting. But with OpenFlow 1.3, we got multiple tables. We got IPv6 and a decent range of matches. So before you go much further, I think an important detail here to point out is that when the marketing machine was in full production, this was pre-OpenFlow 1.3. This is where I got started, and it was right before 1.0 was released. And then it was sort of grabbed by the marketing world and the folks that were pseudo-technical and said, this solves every problem. And it was hyped to the point where there's no way it could ever live up to what it was touted to be. And this is where the problem and sort of the taint, the tainted flavor of OpenFlow came from, I think, because 1.0 was released. And you could buy products based on the fact that it supported OpenFlow 1.0, but it had all these severe limitations that you're talking about. And it was it was barely more than sort of an academic lab project at that point, but it was being used and touted as a production-ready protocol, which I think really stained it forever for a lot of people. Um, and that's where uh, a lot of the, the sort of fear, uncertainty, and doubt comes from is that, you know, this this 1.0 version was supposed to be the chosen one, and it just wasn't. Um, it never could live up to the hype. And so many people just kind of wrote it off at that point. And then it kind of went underground, and that's where you guys sort of came in, right? When 1.3 came out, and it was like, well, this is actually something that you could use, and you ran with that. I just wanted to point out that distinction because folks that don't have the history with this protocol, you know, what's out there when you go and you look at the, you know, historical blog posts and things like that is it's the one ring to rule them all, and then there's nothing. Like it just stops. Like the hype train you know, hit a, hit a mountain at that point. So OpenFlow has its place in history and probably today in the sense that it was like this catalyst that did move, move an industry that did say, you know, it really pushed hardware vendors to start embracing openness and not just hardware, but in software as well. You know, he talked with like Dave Ward not too long ago. You know, he said basically in 2012 at Cisco, they saw the writing on the wall and they basically fully embraced it. You know, they've got enough money where they can put a chip on every, every color on the roulette table, but it was a industry mover. There was like, you know, obviously the, the practicals around it were, you know, kind of a disaster at times. I, mean, I think one of the biggest problems was just dealing with ARP, right? Cause we've got such a disastrous and IPv4, how we do network discovery is a mess. It's, it's an ARP. It's a reverse ARP. It's a proxy ARP. And it's the fundamental brokenness of on-prem data center networks uh, is the VLAN instability. I mean, my experience in operations has always been probably 80 to 90% of outages are due to 
bridging loops, it's a time, ticking time bomb waiting to happen. So, you know, I remember this idea that OpenFlow is the POSIX for networking and it's going to be this common interface that solves all, you know, world hunger, whatever. But there, it, it did start to open up ways to look at how we, that there isn't just one way to, to run networks and, and you don't have to deal with something as stupid as ARP and the way it's dealt with today, which is like Josh getting ready to dive in on how they're dealing with it with faucet. So cool stuff. Yeah. So I think there's um, maybe in response there. So I think the, in marketing um, SDN, one you know, unfortunate uh, misunderstanding was realizing that SDN is actually addressing a, a new audience kind of developers. So, you know, to a person who's used to, used to configuring the switch or a router, OpenFlow is just another, you know, knob to turn on or it's, it's clumsy to use from the command line. But making the actual switch hardware programmable is making the, the system available to a new audience that's never had that before. And speaking as a software person, software people are, are slow to really appreciate and grasp and understand the capability of a new programming model. If you look at consider game consoles, it often takes years after a game console has been released before like the really best games of that platform become available because it takes that long for us developers to really figure out how to make the platform fly. So when you're marketing a programmable platform, you have to have those things in mind. You have to be targeting developers. You have to make it easy for them. You have to be creating developer communities, shipping developer tools, making diagnostic tools available to them so that the developers have an easier time of doing it. Um, I think that was the other thing that was missing. You know, we just uh, treated OpenFlow as just another protocol, read through standards document, implement a few things in the standards document, you know, call it 1.0, ship it done. That's not how you sell a, a product to developers. So in any case, we um, had some advantages in time. So we waited for OpenFlow 1.3. That has allowed us to write the basic kind of VLAN. And um, when you start to program these things, you realize some of the uh, uh, complexities, but also some of the, the ways to to actually solve some problems. So one problem is how can we implement things like broadcasting in a VLAN without involving the controller? Now, one of the, the great OpenFlow FUD things, and it's pretty much in every slide that I've seen decrying OpenFlow, is the controller is like this helpless hostage of the network. It has to sit there while unknown packets kind of just kind of flood in and just jerk it this way and that. Like the controller has to be on the hook for responding to everything. And uh, it turns out this is, is not actually true. You could write an OpenFlow controller that does that, but it would have serious scaling problems. So, in force, if we, we don't do that, if um, you know, we consider us all here ports on a VLAN, there's three of us, what we can do is push a bunch of flows to the switch to make sure that if we've all got uh, you know, native ports, that we don't have any VLAN tags on our ports, so we can check that. The controller doesn't need to do that. Then we can write some flows to cause packets for a broadcast or unknown destinations to go to the other ports. So a broadcast from me goes to Brent and to Nick. Switch can do that ahead of time. It doesn't need to talk to the controller. We know where all the ports are. Um, but what we can do is send a, a tip off to the controller as well. When we do that, everyone once in a while, send a, the first part of the packet to the controller and the controller can decide, yeah, I'm going to push back a unicast rule to have an optimized flow. So next time I send a packet to Nick, the packet goes directly there instead of being broadcasted exactly like an L2 switch does. And the interesting thing here is, it's really simple to explain, and the controller doesn't even have to be running for L2 forwarding to happen. Like, I could turn the controller off, and the network will still work. And this is one of the um, the core principles that we had in Fawcett right from the from the beginning, is 
the controller should be performing next to no actions. It should not be part of the forwarding path. Like the, the whole world shouldn't stop just because the controller is off. So for um, for VLANs, turns out that's that's actually quite easy to to do. For the more advanced use cases like loop protection and everything else, I think we've all been you know, burned by you know, a loop of one kind or another. You go look at um, what's happening in a, in a loop. We actually got all the software running on all these switches that are cooperatively trying to decide, you know, what the uh, topology is. And in a, a network that's configured for defaults, whoever is going to be the decider is unpredictable. Unless we're going to choose a, a bridge route, they're all going to have their own election and discover that themselves. And uh, for anyone who's been running a, you know, a, a server or an S7 network or something else, that's insane. What do you mean you're letting the, the system decide itself? You know, what's the best way to handle a fault? I mean, that's nuts. Like, as the administrator, I, I know where all my switches are. I know where my users are. Why is it that I'm letting this thing flap around in the, in the wind so that at 2 a.m. in the morning it decides to have another, you know, root election and then it switches over to, you know, a bad idea device? You know, why, why let it do that? So that's another approach we took in Fawcett is, okay, once we've got the basic L2 forwarding working, yes, we could go in and, and uh, implement spanning tree and everything else, but, but why? <laughs> Why just do that again? I mean, if, we, if we're just reproducing the same behavior as the current system, why is that improvement? It's, it's not. So we thought, okay, just like, say, uh, EC7 does on the phone network, we can have it actually verify our wiring. So we, as the administrator, take control and responsibility of our own lives, and we write down where our switches are and where they're supposed to be and how they're wired up, and then we have the system verify that the, the wiring is correct. Now, if the wiring is not correct, it should tell us. You know, if I plugged in this cable in port three and it should be port five, it should tell me that, tell me what I got wrong, and then not use it. And this is, is obviously quite different to the discovery model that we have today. But experience shows when you're running these operations, it saves so much time. This machine does actually know, you know, how it's supposed to be wrote, how it's supposed to be wired up. And if we give it a bad wiring plan to begin with, it will tell us that we got it wrong. You know, we, we're missing a link somewhere. You know, all this stuff about, like, where's the loop coming from? You know, all these 2, 2 a.m. conversations and drinking coffee, like, you know, why is this, this switch crashing? You know, where is the traffic going? It just all goes away because instead of 2 o'clock in the morning, we're discussing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, having just, just had coffee, like, oh, how do we want the network to actually work? So that's the next feature we put in, in Fawcett on top of VLANs. How do we make VLANs work uh, together across multiple switches? There's a whole lot of stuff to unpack from what you just said, but I'm going to go ahead and say that where it really starts to get more complicated is where you start to think about, you know, I have X number of switches and I need L2 redundancy. Redundancy always introduces the complexities and L2 redundancy is one of the trial by fire for a network engineer, right? Anyone that's worked on a spanning tree loop or a you know a bridging loop of any kind is just going to be gun shy. So I think not reinventing that the way that it's currently done is a, a smart move, right? Because there's a I mean for all the reasons that we all know. But yeah, I mean I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Brett talk a little bit more about the you know some of the finer points that you made there because I think you know some of them are just a little bit beyond my. Uh, my technical skill set. So I guess almost, you know, at 2013, 14, you know, a lot of us were all plugging away at controllers of various open source projects. 
and kind of this, the, the VLAN use case was always kind of the first use case. I mean, today I would argue VLANs are a disaster, right? Because it's this classification of, of what the application is trying to express in something that the application developer has pretty much no control over. And there's, you know, inherent policy implications. There's inherent path isolation. But I do think it's an important use case in the campus just because it is the reality of campus networks. You're not going to have this you know, disaggregated policy in campus networks in the next five years. It's just not going to happen. It's made it barely. It's starting to happen in data centers, but I, I think data centers completely circumvented SDN. I think we should probably get into that in a little bit, but you know, just that that fundamental. Okay, how do I deal with broadcasts? And you know, to Josh's point, you know, this we used to, you know, rea- the, the idea of reactively punning packets to a controller freaked everybody out. But the irony was at the same time you had wireless controllers that were completely centralized across campuses doing, you know, tens of thousands of addresses. And you know, those were centralized. So like it, it always kind of blew my mind that we're saying, you know, that no you know, all centralization is bad, but our entire wireless infrastructure is riding on a four node cluster. <laughs> This is a good one. Yeah, I'd often go like, oh, well, we, we can't run OpenFlow because um, the control plane like has to be reliable. I'm like, okay, so you can't run BGP because like, what if you drop some BGP packets and your BGP session goes down? Like, you, you know, you're going to lose your, your connection. I'm like, no, that's different. I'm like, no, it's actually the same. Um, and I think the other other case you just mentioned about broadcasting. So yeah, if you look at a, a packet, a packet has addresses. If you're a software engineer, if those those are just those are RPC fields. And um, by sending a packet, you're making a, a request, right? It's not a, um, it's not actually kind of a requirement. Like I, I know that there'll be very old school network people who will go like, no, 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 you know, busy yelling at the screen, you know, right now because of that. But just because a packet has broadcast written on it, doesn't mean you need to broadcast it. This is just like a, a well understood API where the host is asking nicely. I'd really like for you. To, to send this to all of my friends and my connectivity domain. And you don't actually have to do that if that doesn't make sense. Like, you do have to do it if you want complete 100% interoperability, you know, with everybody, everybody else. That's fine. You can do that. You can switch that on. But there are lots of cases where that doesn't make sense to do. And just, you know, sticking to the standard, you know, is cutting off your nose to spite your face, you know, if that's not actually what you, what you need. If you're sticking to a standard that doesn't actually matter for your use case and you're burning up 80% CPU broadcasting everybody, you know, then um, you've, you've lost sight of your priorities, <laughs> which is like making your applications and users work. Like the, a network isn't the goal. I think that's a, another, um, another thing gets lost sight of is the network itself is not a goal. It's, it's supposed to be a utility that helps other people. And if you start putting the network's needs on top of other people's needs, then what are you doing with your life? You've, you've made a made a bad decision somewhere. So yeah, there's a there's a great slide in a talk by Stephen Stewart who's talking about the use of SDN and the enterprise at um, at Google. And uh, if you go towards the end of his talk, it's on the um, we'll put a link with the with this episode. He has a slide saying there are rules, but you can also break them. And he discusses this issue you know, really specifically. Just because a, a host sets certain fields doesn't mean they need to be honored. And that's actually kind of not, not controversial now. Like I could, on my ISP, I could go set all kinds of uh, DCP fields or anything else, and the ISP is probably not going to do anything with them. I have no expectation that the ISP is going to respect you know, what I'm going to do. Or I could send a, a broadcast packet on my Comcast you know, cable modem, and Lord only knows where that goes. Or you could so, just start announcing 
you know, random IP space. And if your provider is not filtering properly, it will happily get announced. But if they are, they can say, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. And I think there's a, maybe to, to Brent's point, one of my, my colleagues, Mark Briere, he has a, an SD, SDX, kind of an internet exchange um, fabric. And that's a really interesting case, practical case of this discussion. So you or I are in a um, internet exchange where we've got our various routers connected together for sharing routes and everything else. That's nice. And we have some kind of rules of the road, like you know, we're not going to try and impersonate each other's IP addresses. And you know we're not going to put traffic on the shared fabric that's not supposed to be there. But these are just kind of an honor code. Like there's nothing to physically prevent us from putting, you know, misconfirming something or getting something wrong. Um, and especially the case of, of ARP, even though our routers are not moving around all the time, like the, the router doesn't pick itself up and, and change racks, like it sits there usually for years until it dies, until we replace it with another one. We've still got this protocol for, let's ask everybody on the exchange who's got Brent's IP address. We'll wait for Brent to say something. Oh, you know, Brent's told us what his IP address is. That's great. Now I'm going to do that again every five minutes. What is the point of that? It's fragile. You know, we uh, over time you get this broadcast noise that makes it really difficult to to diagnose. Uh, it actually introduces yet another you know failing mode. If there's ever a timeout in in that, or you know someone else accidentally misconfigures their router, which can does happen, then you know that that can affect everybody in the exchange. So his idea was we we have a database of who's connected to the exchange. Because if you don't know who's connected to your internet exchange, you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. If you can't write down everybody who's supposed to be connected to your internet exchange point, then you, you have bigger problems with your life. So let's take that list of everybody who's supposed to be connected and, every, and the address that everybody is, is supposed to be using, because I'm pretty certain you're not running DHCP on your exchange, because, again, why, why would you do that? Then his controller just makes arranges the, the broadcast rules and the app processing rules such that when I ask for Brent's IP address, my request, even though it has broadcast in it, is delivered only to Brent. So I could misconfigure my system. I could try to steal Brent's IP address. I could do all kinds of other stuff. I could actually try to configure an address that's not even in the, the, uh, the exchange's address range. And that traffic is dropped at the edge. So now there's, there's, there's never ever, ever got to be a 2 a.m. emergency, like someone had it misconfigured or they changed MAC addresses or they, they did that. They go and plug in a new router, it just won't work until you update the database, just as you should be. Like, you shouldn't be randomly connecting new routers at 2 a.m., you know, without telling anybody. That's, that's bad. If you generalize this not to just, like, uh, connective domains to, to routing to everything else, I think there's a lot of things we can reuse and extend. So from a host point of view, what does it mean to build networks that look like their conventional VLANs and look like their routers, so they've got default gateways and, and all this stuff. But that's not actually what's happening underneath. And this is this very kind of commonplace exercise for people who run old server applications. You know, like, oh, I can run something inside a virtual machine so that it looks a certain way, and then I can actually override its behavior. So I can say this virtual machine has so many resources available to it, or, you know, it's allowed to call this system call, but not that one. What if I can I can do that to not the network itself, but networking applications that are running on that? Like, I'm just going to give you just enough networking behavior to cause you to think you're running on a VLAN, and don't worry about how I'm actually doing it, because I'm going to arrange it in a way that's that's reliable versus the way that this, the standards book says I have to do it. And if you're hearing this and thinking, you know, well, my, my organization would never 
do this or, or this sounds this sounds really hard. It's happening today in your data centers. So networking didn't evolve in data centers because of various reasons, right? There's lots of reasons we don't change hardware ever until you absolutely have to. It's, you know, it's a mix of funding, mix of our jobs are measured in uptime of networks. So if it's not broke, it's a kind of deal. Um, if it's not broke, don't change it. But if you look at, you know, any modern cluster today, uh, orchestration, it's doing all this, right? So everything's been disaggregated out to the edge. The main difference is it's doing it on x86. So networking, the interesting parts of networking in the data center have been pushed to the edge. So all your policy is happening at the edge. Your basic forwarding is happening at the edge. Uh, and it's all being tied together with, you know, an RD, RDBMS on top of some distributed cluster, you know, with, with common interfaces in there, whether it's Kubernetes, whether it's OpenStack. Those are all maintaining the proverbial phone book of where everybody lives, and that's getting updated through that. So I think the the interesting thing is, what about hardware? Well, this started out with a very you know heavy hardware focus, and I think that's where some of the you know disillusion, you know, the the trough of disillusion is real. Everything hits it. I think we we definitely uh, went through that, and now that we're seeing you know these leaps and bounds in the data center and what's happening at the edge, uh, why aren't we doing that? in campus environments or, you know, these kind of, you know, custom, I think Josh's example of an IXP is a great example, right? I think that the important part is articulating those use cases. So it's not the interesting part of forwarding packets from server A to server B. It's applying my my APM policy on top of it. It's applying my organization security policy on top of it and being able to execute Keep up with those policies that doesn't require that don't require change controls that get executed once every other week. You know, after an army of zombies that have no idea what what they're approving, approve it. So what I hear from this is that it's an easier way, and what I've experienced with it is it's it's a, a little bit easier way to express your business logic technologically into the network. Right. So it gives you more granularity. It gives you much more defined mechanism and a central place to take those, you know, whatever the business requirements are and then express them into the network. And it does actually make that significantly easier than the traditional way of, you know, I'm going to touch this device. I'm going to touch that device and then I'm going to pull the config off and do a diff against it, which, I mean, that's pretty much how it's done in most cases. And in some places, you might be lucky to have the pull the config off and do a diff of it part. But it's touching every single piece of equipment one way or another, rather than configuring one instance of, you know, what you want it to look like and then having it disseminated in a way that's programmatic and standard. Right. There's uh, another misused term, kind of orchestration. So sometimes people will think of orchestration as SDN. They're, they're two different things. So yeah, I, I could take a, a big bag of networking devices and a collection of 1970s kind of expect scripts and run them in this giant kind of hairball and, and drive them roughly in the same direction. I can do that today. I don't need any SDN to do that. I'm just taking the existing technology and I'm using a bungee cord and you know, that's how I'm running the steering wheel. You know, and I'm pulling the pulling the pedals with like this little you know, bungee spring thing. I can do that. But like, why is there a steering wheel in here? Like, okay, yes, I could use this gear shift because I like to have the gear shift there. But 
do I actually need it? You know, maybe on the weekend I can go tear around cores in it, corners in it, but if I'm just commuting, why is this gear shift here? In fact, if this vehicle is only going to be commuting every day, you know, why does the transmission need that many gears? It, it doesn't. So then you have the other case, which is why, why build all that capability into all cars for, for everything? Like if you look at a, a router, you look at a switch, like the number of features that it has, the number of knobs and switches you can turn you know, to, to do that, even if you don't turn most of those on, that code is still running somewhere. So why shouldn't I just have a, a kind of car platform and I just write the program you know, that makes sense to me, that runs on my platform, that does my job, and other people can write a different program if they want to. They don't have to. Or we could even share a program if we want to. But why is it the car manufacturer that gets to tell me how the dashboard is laid out? I, I want to do it a different way. I think this is an, another, nothing is a, a certain preciousness from hardware is over, you know, what's behind that dashboard? I think uh, last time we were, we were discussing the subject, we were thinking about like the BMW use case. Like when you go buy a BMW, and I used to own a you know, Mini Cooper S, so it's really a BMW. It's really car as a service. Right, you think that you bought the car, but actually it still belongs to BMW, you're just renting it. And you know, they provide a whole experience. And that's what you're getting actually if you buy a, a network or a switch today, you know, a router or a switch today. You're getting kind of device as a service. Like it will it will expire on you, you need to buy a subscription to keep it up to date. It comes with a community of people you can go and hang out with who've got the same thing as you. You know, you can go to conferences and learn about the latest, you know, BMW thing that they're doing. But you know, what if uh, actually I I really wanted to be a a computer, and uh, I want to be able to see everything that's in there and program it. And a lot of computer vendors like actively encourage that. Like they want you to get into the hardware. You, know, you can get a Intel's DPDK, and they'll show you all the gory details. You know, it's all open source about how to program this thing and really make it fly. But on a, a networking device, you're insulated from that. You're not allowed to program that hardware directly. You have to go via you know whatever is provided. And that's a, a good recipe to make software developers go away. The harder you make something to program, the less developers you have willing to put up the, the effort. It's all it's all backwards. And making more programmable machines never hurt the fortunes of people making those programmable machines. Yeah, you touched on something there that is I have, you know, a very strong personal opinion about that I think, you know, folks like us that have been doing this a long time remember. But some people that are newer to the industry or, you know, they only have four or five years under their belt or whatever, they may not remember a time when licensing for your network hardware didn't exist, yeah. right? You buy the you buy the box. It comes with the software. It's essentially, you know, functionally, it's a right-to-use license for whatever the platform of choice is, and you can do anything you want within the confines of what that code on the hardware can do. If I want to turn on BGP, I turn on BGP. If I want to turn on ISIS, I turn that on, assuming it's available. There may be limits. You know, in the old days, a lot of stuff was software routed. You know, they weren't pushing things into ASICs and a huge amount of equipment. But I could do it if I wanted to. Now, we see, and this has been trending this way for probably a decade, where, oh, well, you can only use the first two 10-gig ports on this, you know, switch that has X amount of 10-gig ports. But you can buy a license that will enable the other ones. You know, it started with that. It started with that and, you know, a protocol license. Well, you can buy this switch or this, you know, this Layer 3 switch, and it'll run these protocols, but 
they won't run consistently. Like they'll maybe they'll shut off or they'll complain in the logs nonstop unless you buy a license to run them. Perfectly capable hardware, but we're licensing this bit just because we can. And that's sort of moved and moved and moved. And now, you know, as they've seen, you know, well, we have this controller that runs all the wireless. And, you know, that seems like a good model. People like it. Well, when are we going to put that controller in the cloud? Oh, and by the way, now it can also manage your switches, right? But you got to pay a license fee for that. And the license fee is X amount per node per year. And now you're not only buying, you're not even really buying the hardware. Like you're sure you're buying the hardware, but you're licensing the service. It's a subscription model. It's, you know, your Netflix of switches. You can't stream this and this and this because, well, it's not on Hulu. It's not on whatever. It's only on Netflix. So you got to buy a subscription from them. It's the exact same model. And, you know, we're going to keep moving in that direction. So having an alternative where you don't have to do that is incredibly important, if for no other reason than it creates an alternative. This is so fantastically like important point. Yeah, actually, the status quo is not not the status quo. You're you're highlighting the the current industry trend. If you don't accept where Steam is going, the only logical conclusion is you get further and further and further away from having any control over your own network. It's a great point. Yeah, and I think so. The, the case for you know switches should probably just be you know some buffers and some queuing is a pretty strong one. But I think we we started at the low level at the hardware and at the very granular level of, okay, I'm, I'm going to be really focused on every single flow. And that, that can turn into insanity pretty quick because you know, my experience with controller projects is just the, the, the sheer amount of scenarios that you start going through. You go through updates, you go through outages. Am I testing when a node comes back online? But again, these are all things that we've been solving in the data center. So there's no reason they can't be solved elsewhere. But what's dry, what drove the innovation in the data center, what drove arguably the innovation, SD-WAN and wireless and IXPs and ISPs, crowd servers, whatever, is, is the actual use case and is the applications being, you know, the management applications being built on top of the infrastructure. And so I, I think that was kind of always, you know, that missing glue is where the applications, the idea of if you build a controller, the applications come, it got a little dicey. But, you know, I think Fawcett's pretty interesting because it does have some you know, big-name backers there that, that add some real juice to solidifying, you know, what that common control, open-source controller should look like. You said she made a really good point about network management. So, yeah, kind of reveal, I'm actually a network management person. And like a, a quote that I often attribute to, to Jen Rexford, hope she correct me, kind of on one, one day, is, you know, STN is a result of network management people being ignored for 30 years. Which is true. Like network management always comes second. You you buy your networks based on cost per port. You kind of slam it in there. You know, hope it's reliable enough. And if you can manage it, you know, that's nice. But most people have, you know, don't have that as a as a first class kind of requirement that you know is easy to manage or easy to orchestrate. And that's a problem. Like uh, in the world now, we have where you know I can upgrade my web server if Apache has a bug or you know there's a new open SSL vulnerability. You know, I can upgrade that at lunchtime, you know, no problem. But if I have a, a vulnerability in my network where, you know, I need to change all the firmware in it or there's some protocol that's, that's busted, that is maybe a year-long project or longer. Or maybe it doesn't even happen. Maybe I end up actually having a forklift on my switches because it's just too hard to change the firmware safely. We can't have that anymore. <laughs> it's just not acceptable you know, to have 
have their systems managed that way. So, and that original VLAN example use case with Wayforset, if I'm running a control program that defines how the connectivity is is going to run on on my network, and there's a bug in it, I need to be able to fix that in one place, show that I fixed it with an automated test, and deploy it on everything at lunchtime. Just what I did with uh, my vulnerable web server, I should be able to do this exactly the same way. Because again, if you at least you can easily change things, and I think that's another you know innovation you know, killer. Being able to just turn protocols on or off experimentally, or even if the uh, the feature is proven useful and, and stable, just getting that something switched on in production on a network that might take years or might ne- never happen. You know, I could just go in and um, enable a new feature in, on an Apache web server somewhere experimentally and, and steer some load over to it with a load balancer to see how it performs. That's easy in server world. And networking world is impossible, but why? You know, why is it impossible? It's it's actually there's no computer computer science reason why it's impossible. It's because we've got this learned helplessness about you know what we're allowed to do with a network. We've got this expectation set that turning on features is hard, testing things is hard. We're not allowed to program things because nobody can quite remember why we're not allowed to program them. But we're not allowed to program. If you accept all those things, then you're going to be stuck in this one point forever. It's a bad place to be. Yeah, that's a good point. Network management rant there. <laughs> I think that the management angle is because that's the closest angle you're going to tie in kind of the, the business apparatus of, of how I'm going to get funding to change change my network or do things differently. And do you know the state of your network right now? Probably not. You probably have, you know, there's probably some polling going on. There's some ICMP going on. But are you really comfortable and say, you know, can, when, when a trouble ticket comes in, can you say, no, this is absolutely working because this test is passing? Absolutely not. This so. is this fundamental thing that I've been saying forever. Building a network is easy. Running a network is historically hard because of all these reasons, right? We don't monitor it. We don't update the monitoring. There's lots of little nuance that maybe, you know, sort of tribal knowledge that doesn't get passed on and having more centralization, more templating, more of the monitoring pieces included in, you know, just the fundamental build minimizes that and makes running it easier with every single addition, right? Every single bit of that we can add makes running it less hard. Actually, there's just um, yeah, one other point on, on centralization. So it's not another area where there's often like a lot of confusion. I think there's a in some of my my favorite or least favorite FUD slides. There's like um, oh well, your um, STN's not going to work because you need this giant OpenFlow mainframe that runs the universe. And you know if that ever that has to be connected to everything, and then if it ever breaks, the entire universe will collapse. And everybody will point and laugh at you. And if you actually look at some of these incredibly large cloud uh, deployments, like Google's uh, data center plus B4 network plus bandwidth enforcer. They all have failure domains. They have redundancy. They have ways to limit the, the scope of the failed system. You know, this controller is only responsible for this area. There's aggregation, like all these familiar concepts that we have in scaling networks there already. So this is not what you guys are saying, but sometimes I do see it said that, oh, you know, you've got to have centralization means everything is running on some giant server cluster somewhere you know, in the top of the world doesn't need to be like that. Yes, you could run it like that if you wanted to, but you don't have to. You could actually separate separate it out into functional domains. And that's how some of the existing, very large existing cloud deployments, that's that's how they work. 
I think, you know, tying it back to operations, I, I, you know, that some people think that, you know, networking people aren't going to be the people that evolve, you know, networking. So I tend to argue, you know, the, the best teacher is always pain, right? So networking people understand the pain of networks. So why not be the networking people leading the charge? Because I think networking people are smart enough to have, keep two thoughts in their head of operations and evolving the network. But, you know, it definitely takes some, uh, you know, going back to the, the drawing board and, and learning new things and kind of opening your mind on how, how, you're, how you're thinking about networking in general. It doesn't. There's nothing to be actually, like, scared about it. Like, there's there's never been a time, you know, where programming and learning to code has been more accessible. Right. Even more like we been able to use uh, GitHub is, you know, like an intermediate school level activity. Right. You can buy FPGA developer kits for, you know, like a hundred bucks. You, know, you can buy these like machine learning toys or like um, there's an Amazon one where they've got a for a couple hundred dollars, you can get a camera with like a machine learning toolkit kind of ready to go. So like there's never been a time now where learning how to influence things, how to program things and make them do what you want has been has never been easier to do. It should be the same for networking. Yes, I mean, there's bugs. You can have a bug. If I write new software, it's probably got bugs in it. Well, it's guaranteed of bugs in it. But this is the thing, operationally, in the response about introducing new software, well, if I introduce new software, it's going to have bugs in it. Like, yes, at least I can guarantee that I've fixed the bug because I can write a test case that shows you that this is the same bug we were discussing, and here's the test case that shows that I fixed it. If you make a mistake, all you can do is is promise never to make it again operationally. And that's a fundamental represents a hard limit on the reliability of your system. You know, if you're just saying, oh, we're going to change our procedure so humans just never make that mistake again, it's never going to happen. You're going to hit that iceberg the same way. Right. And, and you've just added more latency to your, your process of deploying networks. So yes, that's fascinating. Yeah. So don't blame... You know, operators shouldn't uh, take the blame for unreliable networks, um, and they shouldn't take responsibility for unreliable networks either. They should take responsibility for you know getting better software written and better tested so that it gets deployed so it's easier, which is like the the SRE, the successful SRE model that's been used in, in other areas of the industry. I think that is a wonderful end note for us, and I think it's as true as anything could be. And so I think. Let's given given 2020. Let's end on that high note. <laughs> we're, we're about an hour in. Just just under an hour in, and you know we we've sort of run through a lot of these things and, and talked about the VLANs, and I I think we've ended on a high note here. We shouldn't have to take that responsibility, and we don't have to, and also monitor your networks. <laughs> so with that. And we're gonna we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about some more faucet stuff. I think in in a future episode because there's just a lot to unpack that you know I couldn't really give justice to whenever I came on after the various deployments of uh, faucet that I've done. And so we really just kind of scratched the surface and laid the foundation here for diving quite a bit deeper in into this. So with that, and, and given my rambling, if folks on the internet were looking to get a hold of you if they want to know more about faucet if they think they know more and they want to give you a piece of their mind about sdn where would they find you josh best place is to 
get a hold of me or see what I'm up to is via uh, GitHub. So I am Anarkiwi, A-N-A-R-K-I-W-I on GitHub. You can, you can see what I'm up to. Excellent. And Brent, where would someone go to find you on the internet? I mean, in real life, I'm getting ready to go change a part on a lawnmower, which is going to be like the highlight of, of the month. I'm pretty excited about it. Other than that, though, in the virtual world, I'm always on uh, Network Static. I've uh, actually started some podcasting myself with some folks uh, at the net.lol and, uh, you know, following the footsteps of giants like Yvonne and uh, you guys. So pretty fun stuff. Uh, great time to be in the community. So look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. It's great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to our uh, future segment routing discussion that we're slated to do on uh, yours as well. Yes, sir. So anyone that doesn't know, I'm Nick Braulio on uh, the Twitters is at Forwarding Plane. I blog occasionally on forwardingplane.net and occasionally do a podcast on Software Gone Wild. So if you're looking for any of us, that's where to find us. And we appreciate you listening. Send any comments to the blog and we will do our best to uh, address them. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.